Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, Missouri State University English professor Edda Madden talks about her latest book, Engaging Italy, American Women's Utopian Visions and International Networks, published by the State University of New York Press in April 2022. This group biography explores the lives of three little-known American women whose lives intersected in and involving Italy of the mid-19th century. Etta Madden was interviewed by fellow bio member Jennifer Skoog. Etta Madden, I loved your book. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to interview you. Yes, Thank you so I much. Loved it. Yeah, you have written a compelling group biography that centers around three 19th century women with a focus on their utopian visions. So, what constitutes utopian literature? Well, utopia very generally means a focus on a good place a perfect place, but it also, through its etymology, signifies a place that never can really exist. And so for the three women that I'm writing about, I try to capture their dreams and hopes of what Italy would offer them, but also the sad part of their stories, which is those dreams were never completely realized. So give me a brief overview of these three women. Who are they and why did they go to Italy? How did they end up there? Okay, so I will start with the first woman I began researching. That's Anne Hampton Brewster, who went to Italy the second time to escape the confines of her life in Philadelphia, where she felt she was under her brother's thumb, and to begin living independently as a correspondent for a Philadelphia newspaper. She ended up staying from 1868 to 1892. So a long career as a newspaper correspondent. Another of the women is Caroline Crane Marsh, who was the wife of the first U.S. minister potentiary. That's a hard word to say. We would say the U.S. ambassador to the newly unified kingdom of Italy. And while she lived in Italy as the ambassador's wife, she became an activist involved with schools and orphanage. And she also continued her work as a translator. The third woman, Emily Bliss Gould, supposedly she went to Italy for her health. She became involved with the same school and orphanage movement that Carolyn Crane Marsh was involved with and became a significant fundraiser for the school and orphanage in Rome. She lived in Italy for 15 years and died fairly suddenly in Italy in 1875. They did not know each other when they went abroad. They got to know each other while they were living in Italy. But how did they end up there as opposed to, let's say, Germany or Constantinople? Italy's long history, going back to the Roman Empire, held promise to a lot of Americans who believed in the sort of um, republicanism and democracy of the Roman Empire. It also, in the 19th century, promised a kind of freedom and escape. And so people like Anne Hampton Brewster were attracted to Italy for that reason, Obviously, Carolyn Crane Marsh went with her husband, who was a U.S. ambassador, Um, but he, too, 
saw Italy and its history as a place where he could follow up on what he had read about through the decades. Emily Bliss Gould went for her health. I do think that a change in her husband's career also factored into that couple going abroad in 1860. Uh, Many people were advised for health reasons to go to Italy for the warmer climate and the sun. And all three of these women also struggled with health. And so thinking that Italy would help their health was also a motivating factor. So instead of writing about one of these women's lives, why did you choose to write a group biography? I began by thinking about how different it was to live abroad for a long period of time as an expat, as opposed to being a short-term tourist. And I began thinking about the number of Americans from the 19th century, because that was my historical area of work. I began to think about what American women had been there. And I began coming across list of names. And part of my career goal has been recovering lost American women. And so I began to discover these women that were all there at the same time. And so what I really wanted to emphasize was the way in which the dynamism of a historical moment contributed to how the women interacted with each other. So they wouldn't necessarily have chosen to go on a trip abroad together, but once they were there as English speakers, they were drawn together by their common language and culture, and um, that expat life fosters a sort of community. And for these women, it also helped their writing. And if I could go back a little bit, I mentioned some of the draws of Italy, but I didn't mention the political changes that were going on in Italy in the 19th century. And that's a really important part. What was going on in Italy at the time? In the middle of the 19th century, Italy and other European countries, monarchies, were going through political upheaval, especially with the masses pushing for representation and more independence. And in part, that also often included independence from the Roman Catholic Church. In Italy, there had been many upheavals in the political kingdoms scattered throughout the peninsula. The best known one is 1848 revolutions, which happened also in France and and throughout Europe. For a short time, Rome established a republic in 1848. Didn't last long, but that got many Americans' attention. Many Americans were rooting for this sort of overthrow of the monarchy and Roman Catholicism and the power of the Pope. And so really from 1848 forward, there is an American interest among the politically inclined to follow the Roman question. What is going to be the outcome of this sort of pull of forces between church and state? Would Italy become a united kingdom of the whole peninsula as opposed to these separate uh, monarchies? One of the reasons U.S. citizens were watching it was that our own country was divided leading up to the Civil War. And there was also an influx of immigrants from Europe because of the revolutions. And many Protestant Americans were petrified about all the Roman Catholic immigrants that were arriving. And so they very much saw that whatever happened in Italy with the relationship between church and state and the Pope's power was also going to be connected to what was happening in the U.S. as it was moving forward with all of these immigrants. So there were many people who were interested in the political changes on the peninsula. 
So you read this group biography of these women. What were some of the challenges that you faced in organizing this narrative into a cohesive three-part narrative? So you mentioned it has three parts. And I will say that one of the struggles that I had was with organization. Um, as you know, writing biography is challenging, especially if you want to move away from a traditional cradle-to-grave biography. And, you know, it seemed like an obvious way to arrange it would be to tell the story of Anne Hampton Brewster's time in Italy, to tell the story of Caroline Crane Marsh's time in Italy, and tell the story of, of Gould's time in Italy. But that had problems as well, because it didn't capture the way that their lives were intertwined. So I really wrestled with the structure. That was definitely a challenge. And then there's this thematic thread of utopia, which I think does in itself have a kind of arc, because people, utopian dreamers, people who are thinking about making the world a better place or being part of a better world, start with this incredible optimism and hope. But because the nature of utopia is that it can never exist, there is this sort of, you know, despair, these, these moments of coming to terms with the reality and then deciding how to act. And so I knew I wanted to capture that sort of arc as well. And then there's the whole political context, like sort of laying the groundwork. So it was a challenge. I will tell you that one of the key moments for me, an aha moment, was attending the bioconference and hearing Joseph Esposito talk about his then relatively new book, An Evening in Camelot, where he focuses on you know, one dinner in Washington, D.C. as a sort of the start of this important moment. And I thought, that's what I need to do. I need that, that moment. And I was thinking back through my notes and what all I had read. And I remembered that there was a dinner honoring Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, probably the best known American poet of the 19th century during the 19th century. And so when he arrived in Italy in 1868, there were all of these festivities in Rome honoring him. And two of the three women were at those festivities and writing, uh, writing about Longfellow. And so I thought, I'll start with this evening of Longfellow's dinner. And that will allow me to say something about what these women are doing there, why Longfellow was being honored, what's happening in Rome at the time. And so that's kind of the way I started. And I think once I got that moment, it helped me think a little bit more about how to organize the book. Yeah. And then at times in your narrative, you refer to what I would think of as salons, but you're like, these were not salons. They did not want to be known as salons. They hosted weekly receptions in Rome and other places that sustained these women in many ways, not just socially, but politically and in their careers as well. So tell me about some of the ways that these receptions helped them in their lives. Sure. And I, I, I think you're, you're pulling out a really great point from the book. The women would not call their evening reception salons because to them that had such a negative connotation associated with the salonier, the, the French women who were, who were hosting these highly intellectual conversational evenings. It wasn't that these three women were not intellectual. What they really were afraid of was being categorized as radical women. And that's another really important part of the story. I argue that one of the reasons we don't know these women's names is that they fell through the cracks of history because they were not radical enough. And so their receptions became those moments where they could network, not just with people that they knew, but people who might show up that they didn't know yet. 
And I think Anne Hampton Brewster's were probably the most important. She hosted two receptions a week in her 17-room apartment on the Quirinal Hill in Rome. And she made a point of flowers and music and food. And um, the way that she dressed, she wore all black and like jewels. And her place yes. was decked out. I mean, you go into great detail. How did you get this information about how she dressed and what her home looked like? So there were a lot of newspaper articles across the country being written about what was happening in Rome. And so Charles Warren Stoddard wrote a newspaper article that was published in California about the receptions in Rome at Brewster's house. And so that one article provided a lot of detail. And then we also have you know, a formal portrait of Brewster where she's dressed in her black velvet with her you know, white collar and her pearls. And then in her own journals, she wrote extensively about who attended the reception. She wrote also about how expensive it was to host them. She was constantly worried about money, but she knew that it was something that she had to do. And they cost her money, but those events that people attended also ensured that she got to continue writing news articles, which paid her. Um, so she was writing for New York newspapers, Chicago newspapers, Boston newspapers, Philadelphia newspapers. Um, Wait, but she had to. This was something she was single. She, of the three women, she was the single woman. Yes. Who yes. may or may not have had bisexual tendencies or homosexual tendencies. And right. she was trying to get away from underneath her brother's financial thumb and really have a self-sustaining career. So she really had to worry about money in a way that the other two women might not have had. That's easy to say. And it's easy to say this is a book about women of privilege. It's always relative, right? So the Marshes, uh, George and Caroline Marsh, always worried that they didn't have enough money. They always overspent. There are a lot of expectations for an ambassador you know, to entertain. But you were right. Brewster was attempting to be self-sufficient and she managed to be self-sufficient. I should also add, though, that she had real estate in the States that provided some rent money that came to her as well. She also couldn't keep the 17-room apartment as her contractual agreements with newspapers began to fade later in the century. And so she moved to smaller quarters and then eventually moved to even smaller quarters in Siena, where life was less expensive. Were you able to visit some of these places that these women lived? Um, yes, yes, and no. <laughs> For many of them, you know, I visited from the outside and have taken pictures Many of them are privately owned or there are condominiums or apartments, and I have not been able to go inside. One that I have gone inside is a ho the house in Florence where the Marshes lived and maintained even after the capital of Italy moved to Rome. And George and Caroline, George was often in Rome. Caroline would sometimes go with him, but they maintained a home in Florence, Italy. And I, I have been inside of that because it is now city offices. It's a public building, so I have been able to go into it. And for me as a writer, those moments are really, really crucial to helping the stories come to life. So as much as the newspaper articles and the diaries and the letters and the journals, I am a firm believer in you know, going to the places, even if we can't see all of the spaces where people live, just trying to get a feel for literally the lay of the land. When you talk about these three women becoming obscure through history, there were times when I was reading this book that I quoted um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, her quote of uh, well-behaved women rarely make history. 
you also talk about how these women and their genteel nature and their accommodating ways um, is a balancing act, their reputations, their careers, their independence, you know, this genteel nature. And they've largely disappeared from a historical standpoint. And I wanted to know why they made choices that were safe. Boy, I think that's a question of psychology. And I'm not sure, (laughs) I'm not sure that I'm prepared to answer that. You know, I do think that there's fear involved. And uh, you mentioned Brewster's sexuality and her sexual orientation. And that's something that other people have written about. Early in her life in Philadelphia, she was associated with Charlotte Cushman, a famous actress known as the female Romeo. One of the reasons she went to Rome was she had an invitation from Charlotte Cushman to come and live in Rome where she would be more free. And even though Charlotte Cushman was then in a a relationship with another woman and had been in many other relationships, I think there was something calling to Brewster about being in relationships with other women. But then when an Irish novelist, Amelia Edwards, comes on to Anne Hampton Brewster during her time in Rome, Brewster is, she is appalled by Amelia Edwards' behavior and that Amelia Edwards is wearing a wedding ring and going around with another woman that she refers to as her wife. And so I I think reading all of that helped me decide that she was probably afraid of intimacy at any level. And she definitely was afraid of intimacy with another woman. And so I think female friendship was something more that that she was interested in. The other two women were married. And I believe that their behaviors and their choices to not be quite so radical may have had to do with their marriages and thinking about their husband's lives and career. And that's my my speculation based on what I've read and, and how I've thought about them. You dedicate a whole section to literature of the time. These two characters, Daisy Miller and Miss Jones. Can you tell me why you decided to put this this literature into this narrative in particular? So um, not only am I an academic, but my training is in American literature. So I read text and I analyze text. And when I first started thinking about women in Italy, it was in the context of American writers of bell letters, traditional literature, fiction, short stories, poetry. And there are a lot of American male authors that are well known for what they've written about Italy. Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry James, Mark Twain, they're also mentioned in the book. And one of the figures that bothers me most is Henry James's young Daisy Miller. Uh, Now, I love reading Daisy Miller. I think Daisy Miller is a fantastic character. But in short, for those listeners who don't know the story of Daisy Miller, she is described as a relatively naive, young, nouveau riche, unattended American girl of about 16 in Europe. And half of the novella is set in Rome. And she, spoiler, um, she dies of Roman fever. But how does she contract Roman fever? She gets it by being at the Colosseum at night unchaperoned. So sorry for anybody who's listening. If you haven't read it and you want to read it, now you know what happens at the end. But that Daisy Miller figure has become quite popular to describe American young women abroad. And so there's been this tradition of these young, naive, fast American women abroad. And what I wanted to do with looking at older women in Italy was to tell a different story to tell a story about women who were abroad who maybe behaved differently. 
So that really was one of my goals early on as well. And so all three of the women went to Italy at midlife. And I think that's an important part of the story as well. Just knowing about James's Daisy Miller and Aunt Friendly's Miss Jones, I think it gives a window into the sensibilities of the time, even though there were other women like Harriet Hosmer and others yes. that were living their lives out loud and so on. These three women were like very cautious about their reputations. Right. And you, you mentioned Harriet Hosmer, the sculptor, and she was one of the women in Charlotte Cushman's circle. And many of these women were visual artists. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne also wrote about them. Another is Louise Lander, that he was in her studio as a, a subject of her art. And because of her reputation, he calls that quits. And um, he also was worried about his daughter, his own daughter. And he wrote the novel, The Mar Marble Fawn, based on time in Italy. And it has the same kind of stereotypes that Daisy Miller has in it. And so there were these very real images floating around in the culture. And of course, you know, the way stereotypes and images are, they are partially drawn from reality, kind of twisted and manipulated. And then those images then influence the way that people like Nathaniel Hawthorne saw female artists like Harriet Hosmer. And so it's kind of a circle. Yeah, Hawthorne and James are two men stereotyping women, whereas Aunt Friendly was actually a woman writing this story of Miss Jones and right, Miss Jones right. doesn't die in the end. Right. And so I came across this story called Miss Jones, basically unknown, in a collection of poems, essays, and stories dedicated to Emily Bliss Gould after she died in 1875. And it was written by someone known with a pseudonym of Aunt Friendly, it was written as sort of Sunday school literature. It has a very strong moral. It's very didactic. But what struck me about the story is that Miss Jones is not a, a Daisy Miller. She's a young woman who's abroad. She knows other languages. She's independent. She's wearing traveling clothes, not flounces and fancy dress. But she also decides while she's visiting tourist sites in Italy, she decides she wants to do something to help the people that she's seeing that are impoverished. And that basically is a story of Emily Bliss Gould, except that Emily Bliss Gould was not a young Miss Jones when she first went to Italy. And so when I read that story, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the perfect contrast to Daisy Miller. It was actually published before Daisy Miller. So those two stories side by side, Daisy Miller and Miss Jones, really, I believe, show the sort of contrast in views of what American women might be or what American women were. And so I thought this might help me set up the story of Gould, Marsh, and Brewster, because one of my points was try to, to try to show the diversity among American women abroad. Well, why should we care about these three women? You know, whenever we begin to put people into one category, American women abroad, that we're doing a disservice because there are all kinds of people who go abroad for various reasons. So that's kind of, you know, a, a simplistic answer. But from the perspective of traveling and going abroad, um, readers who pick this up may be interested in going back to Italy or going to Italy for the first time or living abroad. There are, I guess, three messages that I kind of want the book to, to give. And one is, even though people may go to escape, 
from a horrible political climate in the US, from a divided country or from feeling repressed by their family, that even if they go somewhere like Italy to escape, that it's good to be open to what might happen when you're there because you might find a calling that you didn't realize that you had when you when you left home. So that's one kind of message. That's what happens to the three women. Another is that sort of negative aspect of their arc. And that is all three of them had to come to terms with what they were not able to do as outsiders living in someone else's country. And so I think that's a really important message of the book too, is that these women gained a kind of humility. And even though they had these grand dreams of what they might accomplish, they realized I'm an outsider and I need to be open to learning from the people that I'm around. The other message is more for writers and people who are literary. And that is the message of how the women's writing while they were abroad, their letters to each other, their letters to friends and family back home, their journal and diary writing, and then the writing that they were doing for publication, whether it was for newspapers, whether it was translations, whether it was fundraising pamphlets like Gould was writing, that the writing that we do not only sustains ourselves, but it fosters the community of writers that we're a part of. And so this book also is a book about writing. When you were doing research for this book, what archives did you visit? The first one was the Library Company of Philadelphia, which is where Anne Hampton Brewster's papers are. And as is often the case, I barely scratched the surface in what I'm actually including in the book. So that's a very rich collection. Um, I also worked at the New York Public Library, which has Caroline Crane Marsh's papers and the papers of her family, and also at the University of Vermont, which has many of George Perkins Marsh's papers and some of Caroline's are there as well. I also found Emily Bliss Gould's letters at the University of Vermont because she was writing to George and Caroline. Interestingly, more letters to George than to his wife, Caroline, which also was sort of pushing against the grain of what was expected. Uh, I think she was the most radical of the three women, actually. Um, I also looked at materials at New York University. They have a large collection of Sunday School Union materials, and some of Gould's letters were there. I will tell you, you know, there are always those materials we can't find. Emily Bliss Gould apparently kept a lot of diaries while she was traveling abroad. And we know about those because a 19th century biographer quotes from them. I was so determined to find those diaries and never found them. I, I did also use archives in Italy. I should have mentioned that. Did you write as you were researching or did you accumulate all of your research materials before you started writing? I am a very messy writer. I write as I go along, which means even if I have a plan, the plan changes. And I did that with this book. When I initially began visualizing, it was going to be about two women, one of whom is not in the book at all, because I also began to realize I needed to narrow the historical scope. But basically, I write as I go along and I allow myself to write if I get motivated by something that I find. So for example, when I was reading Emily Bliss Gould's handful of letters with George Perkins Marsh, I began to realize this chemistry between this man and this woman, both of whom were married. And so as I was reading those letters, I just had to let myself write. Well, Etta Madden, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation too, Jenny. That was English professor and author Etta Madden speaking with bio member Jennifer Skoog about her group biography, Engaging Italy, 
American Women's Utopian Visions, and International Networks, published by the State University of New York Press in April 2022. We recorded this interview via Zoom on August 2nd of this year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.